Good evening. Just to say, first of all, my name's Hester Jones. Um, I'm a co uh, coordinator alongside Roger Layett um, uh, for the World Community for Christian Meditation. I'm based in the parish of Abbotsley and Lee Woods and uh, also work in Bristol University. And it's my enormous pleasure on behalf of WCCM and um, in alliance with Contemplative Outreach to welcome you all tonight to St. James's Priory. That so many of you are here tonight, and some I know from far afield, is, I think, a wonderful testimony to the growing interest in contemplative prayer and to the teaching of Cynthia Bourgeau in fostering that interest. Well, I'm, I feel sure that Cynthia Bourgeau will, in fact, need little introduction to many of you who've come here this evening. We meet here in the center of the city of Bristol on this dank yet perhaps momentous night as events unfold across the Atlantic. And John Mayne, who brought meditation back into the center of Christian practice, reminds us that the word meditation means literally to stand still in the center. Cynthia Bourgeau stands still in the center in many senses also, as a mystic, an Episcopal priest, a world teacher about prayer, wisdom, and the contemplative life, a prolific writer, an internationally known retreat leader, and also, last but not least, a mother and a grandmother. Cynthia has long been associated with a particular form of contemplative prayer, centering prayer, and worked with practitioners and teachers as well known as Thomas Keating and Richard Raw. Her focus on contemplative prayer has taken the more particular form recently of interspiritual dialogue. She's a member of the Global Peace Initiative for Women and the Contemplative Council and the recipient of the 2014 Contemplative Voices Award from Shalem Institute. Here in the UK, many of us will have come to know Cynthia Bourgeau in particular through her published work, which include The Holy Trinity and the Law of Three, The Meaning of Mary Magdalene, one of my personal favorites, The Wisdom Jesus, Centering Prayer and Inner Awakening, Mystical Hope, The Wisdom Way of Knowing, Chanting the Psalms, and the enormously bold, personal, and very moving account of spiritual friendship, love is stronger than death. Do check these out afterwards, as there is a bookstall at the back of church, so you can um, consult these for yourselves after the talk. Well, Cynthia has said that silence is not the absence of noise, but the absence of resistance to God. We are keen now to resist no longer, and so it gives me very great pleasure to invite you, Cynthia, to speak on your topic, the power of contemplative prayer, Christian non-duality, and attention of the heart. Cynthia. <laughs> Thank you. 
Well, it's a thrill to be here in Bristol. I've always known it was a beautiful city from the outside, but I'm seeing it's a beautiful city from the inside to see so many people here. Uh, driven, I'm assuming, by a common yearning for those treasures of love and silence and equanimity and blessing that are opened up in a practice of meditation. So it's a thrill to be with you on this cold, rainy transition of the season night. And I would have to say, if you haven't figured out by now that I hail from the United States, uh, you may know that we're, we're going through the eye of the needle tonight in a political election that uh, will have impact on the whole world. And so to have a whole group of people gathered together intentionally in silence, uh, praying in your heart that all may be well in our planet, is I think a blessing and it's certainly a personal one to me. I don't consider you so much an audience as compatriots on the road, colleagues of the heart, as we build a different kind of a planet on the foundations that have been so beautifully uh, hand, handed on to us in our traditions. So my, my, my first purpose tonight is to really give you a little bit of a trailer on my, my most recent book that will be out sometime in December, uh, figuring in publishers, slowdowns, and others. But it's called The Heart of Centering Prayer, uh, non-dual Christianity in theory and practice. We got a few little cards about it around and about. Uh, you'll find it out on, uh, on Amazon.uk, however it is here, Amazon.com back there. But, uh, but since I know very, very well that we have a mixed audience of practice tonight, with people about equally divided between those that do centering prayer, those that do Christian meditation, and those that do other practice as a nun, I don't want to set up the talk in a way that I'm talking only about centering prayer. Because what I really have to say tonight is relevant across the board. If you're doing a practice of, of, con of contemplative prayer, uh, of meditation, uh, by any Christian path, what I have to say tonight is, is about that. So we'll, we'll take that commonality and work from there. Some of the technical nuts and bolts in my book have to do with specifics of centering prayer, but that doesn't concern what we're going to be about tonight or what the book is going to be about tonight. Uh, as I think most of you know, in the 1970s, we had a real awakening in Christianity, a real change when, uh, when the contemplative awakening began in earnest with the introduction of parallel simple practices of meditation into the Christian tradition, uh, centering prayer and Christian meditation, offering these two parallel tracks. 
which made it possible for the first time, really, in about 1,500 years, uh, for Christians, particularly lay Christians working in the world, to do a serious practice of sitting meditation uh, without having to engage another tradition. So this has been very, very important. It was really a sea change in how Christianity was understood and practiced. And I think this has had a profound impact on Christianity as we now know it today. It's amazing to think that we now have a history about 40 years long of people who have voluntarily subjected themselves to a rigorous daily practice of meditation and have therefore opened up and, in, and initiated in themselves all the changes that come about, the changes in perception, the changes in attitude, the changes even in uh, physiology, in neurology that happen when you, really, when you really open yourself and take on meditation as the basis uh, of your life practice. So we've got a 40-year track record now of people in at least the hundreds and thousands, if not the millions, in Christianity who've been experiencing this, taking it on and letting it do its thing inside them. So this has, of course, opened up and developed a whole new kind of person who exhibits, and we've even seen out there, now that neuromeditation has become more and more common, and you can wire people up to fMRIs and, and see what's happening in the brain when meditation is engaged. And we see measurable data on the effects in, in stress reduction, equanimity, brain uh, plasticity, rebalancing, all of these fruits of meditation, plus those fruits that our own tradition has constantly pointed us to. The opening up of a different way of seeing, a different whole system of perception that grows out of seeing the world uh, through this angle. So we have this whole data bank of Christians that are really living in a sort of different Christianity, a Christianity that is not so much tied to their head, their intellectual rationals, their dogma, their theories, but to the actual insight that, that comes to us from the cushion. So what I've, I've gotten interested in is that this also opens up to us for the first time a new window of interpretation on the ancient core texts of our Christian mystical and contemplative tradition. And because, as they like to say in the inner tradition, um, that the, the higher, the lower cannot perceive the higher, that there are certain things that can only be perceived from the level at which they're written. 
And what we mainly have had in our tradition is that this great mystical tradition of people who've seen, who've viewed, who've understood, who've applied these deep powers of luminous insight that were always called in our tradition contemplation. That body of data has by and large been interpreted by scholars who use their own rational methodology, but often can't see the subtle connections that are available only in the process of practice and in the fruits of practice. So I began to see that chapter and verse as I worked in my own in centering prayer. Now, as many of you know, the core text for the practice of centering prayer is the cloud of unknowing, that 14th century anonymous British spiritual classic. And I had first met this book uh, years and years, years and years before I ever got interested in meditation. Uh, in my earlier work, I was a graduate student and I, I worked in this as a, as a piece of medieval literature. So I read all the things that people usually say about the cloud of unknowing. That, oh, it's a, it's a classic of Christian love, of love mysticism, and on and on the scholars go. From the practice of centering prayer and working closely with centering prayer and kind of leveraging my experience on the prayer cushion with what was said in the book, I all of a sudden began to see something very different about the cloud of unknowing that it is not, as scholars have said, a treatise about love mysticism, that it really is an extraordinary early study in what you would call now the phenomenology of consciousness. In other words, the levels of consciousness and how you move from one state to the other with very specific insights and instructions about how to do this. And so I said, wow. And I was realizing that in the light of my experience with centering prayer, I understood things about the cloud that I'd never seen being said by scholars who were studying it in English literature as a subset of the early English vernacular literature. Whole different ballpark. So, in other words, I realize that what we have when we, when we do the practice of meditation is that we open up a lens of contemplative seeing upon the texts. And what I proposed to do in my book, uh, The Heart of Centering Prayer, is to look through that lens and see what it can tell us about Christianity's well-hidden practices and understanding of non-duality. So that's the, that's the history, that's what the book is up to in a nutshell, and what I'm going to impact, unpack for you uh, this evening in an even tighter nutshell. Uh, this will be Julian of Norwich compacted nutshell upon nutshell, <laughs> but uh, at any rate, uh, that I remember years and years and years ago, it was just my luck 
to be flying home from the West Coast from California on an airplane one day, uh, just at the end of the breakup of the first conference, the ending of the first conference on science and non-duality. And at that conference, those, those conferences have been going on for probably a dozen years now. And at the end of that particular conference, I overheard two gents in the airplane sitting in front of me talking about it and listening to all the speakers. Well, there was the Dalai Lama and the usual uh, suspects of Buddhism, the great Hindus, the great, uh, the great neurologists of our time, the fabled Dan Siegel and others. And somebody said, well, well what about the Christians? And the other fellow says, well, there were no Christian speakers because Christianity has no tradition of non-duality. And that's what it often looks like when you read the texts from the outside. The reasons usually given for the assumption that Christianity has no tradition of non-duality is because the language in which Christian uh, mystical and non-dual experience is couched, the language in which it's written, is, is usually in terms of the metaphors of love and nuptial union and personal betrothal with God. And from a Buddhist perspective, as you look at it, you say, aha, they're stuck in a personal God. They're stuck in affection. They're stuck in sentimentality. Therefore, they're not non-dual. So it's on that basis that I've heard said many times that the, the Christian, Christian religious tradition has no, uh, no what Ken Wilbur and the other groups call third-tier uh, representative uh, texts. I think that's completely wrong. But I think that in order to unpack the language of Christian non-duality, you need to adopt the view from the meditation cushion. So what I want to do is talk about some things that become very, very clear once meditation enters your life, not only as a tool for personal transformation, but as a tool for interpretation, as an interpretive lens on the tradition that we've received. So that's where we're going to go. I realize I need to begin a little bit with a better definition of this term non-duality. Uh, it's one of those terms that's everywhere, and my, my book publishers did what all book publishers did do, and say, let's get the word non-dual in the title somewhere because it'll sell better. <laughs> because things sell better if they have non-dual in the title now, at least among the spiritual thing. So we put it in, but I think a lot of people uh, really don't have a clue what non-duality means. It's one of these words uh, like soul, which has been so kind of gerrymandered and privatized, and there are a million different definitions out there, that you might do better to just declare a moratorium on the use of the term till everybody could agree, at least on a baseline. Non-dual is getting to be like that. What people agree is that it seems to point to a higher state that has something to do with oneness. But beyond there, the interpretations go off in radical different directions. 
that, and they range in a gamut going from, on the one hand, definitions that say, well, non-dual simply means that you're paradox tolerant. You don't think in black and white. You can live with ambiguity. That's the kind of sort of low-end definition of non-dual that won't pass any muster by the more rigorous standards in which the term was applied in the Eastern traditions from which the term emerged. Uh, some people say it's a mystical experience. Some people say, well, if it's the top, it's, if it's the top in the Eastern traditions to call something non-dual, then it must correspond with the top in the Western tradition, which we have classically called unitive. And a lot of people will say, well, the Buddhist, you know, the Eastern version of non-dual and the, and the Western version of unitive are the same. They're talking about the same thing. Yes, but not quite yes. That they, that in the Eastern traditions, that by and large, the experience of unity, the experience of oneness that's called non-dual, has to do with essentially a monistic flavor. In other words, the discovery that I am that, that the, that the ground luminosity is my own identity, that that radiance is my true nature, that I am one with the Buddha nature. So it has a recognition, it has the tendency to recognize one's oneness with something. Whereas in the unitive in the West, there is this irreducible relationality. It's, and as a matter of fact, the imagery used for it uh, has to do with mystical marriage, as I've said, nuptial union, uh, the uniting with the beloved, uh, so that the two become one in union rather than in identity. So they're, they're describing, in a way, a, a similar state, but it has a very different feeling tone to it. And I think these differences are important differences. So one of the first things I, I do in my book is to propose a new way of looking at this whole question of non-dual and suggesting that maybe we shouldn't be seeing it as a new and more exalted state of spiritual attainment, but as a fundamental shift in the window or the lens of perception, and a fundamental shift in it caused by a rewiring, as it were, of the operating system so that essentially you're running a different program of perception. Uh, what, what, I, what I said in the book, let's see if I can find this little stretch up. I said, clearly there's a big shift in perception that takes place between non-dualistic and dualistic levels of consciousness, resulting in those signature experiences of oneness, and an unboundaried, flowing sense of selfhood. But what if the shift is not primarily about what one sees, as how one sees? 
that it betokens not so much a new level of conscious attainment as a permanent shift in the structure of consciousness, as it were, as it were a rewiring of the operating system. So according to the way of looking at things that's current in present maps of the levels of consciousness, uh, that all the works on what, what Kim Wilbur likes to call the first and second tiers of consciousness, up to and including uh, the integral level, all work with a s increasingly sophisticated uses of a fundamental, the classic binary operating system of perception. In other words, perception through differentiation. Our brain sets up the perceptional field immediately with an inside and an outside a subject, an object. And our attention goes from subject to object, and we distinguish among the, the objects by their, their, their differentiators. I am me by function of that I am not you. I have these characteristics, these characteristics, these characteristics that make me, me. It's a program of perception. It's an operating system of perception. Uh, the world swirls around us outside and is navigated by breaking it up then into finite bits, uh, which are then manipulated through a set of standard binary operations, more or less, better or worse, good, bad. In this operating system, identity is conferred by differentiation and to be self-aware means to be able to stand outside yourself and reflect back on yourself, or to be able to navigate your way forward and backward along the arrow of time through memory and imagination. This is the fabled self-reflexive consciousness, the mind that has brought the Western world into existence, the I think, therefore I am mind, upon which the foundations of modern civilization rest. And it's by far an evolutionary achievement, but it's not all there is. Imagine that there might be a different way of structuring the field of perception, an alternative way of wiring the brain that did, did not depend on that initial bifurcation of subject-object, inside-outside, me, you, but that could perceive the whole entire pattern at one whole, holographically, the way a symphonic conductor does when he or she stands in front of an orchestra and looks at a score and doesn't see 80 points, 80 parts running, different parts, but here's one single sonic pattern in which all is differentiated, but all belongs. Imagine that there was that kind of a perceptional pattern that works on vibrational resonance rather than mental abstraction. Then one would indeed experience that signature sense of oneness, not, however, because one had broken into a whole new bandwidth of spiritual experience, but because that tedious, translator mechanism of the self-reflective brain had finally been superseded. You see oneness 
because you see from oneness. The brain and the heart are actually rewired in a way that you're running a different program. Like in computer language, upgrading your operating system. And I believe that non-dual and those, those third tier, as they're often called now, states of consciousness are an upgrade in the operating system. So that one essentially is no longer running, at least as your normal mechanism, this distinguish, differentiate, this versus this, me versus that kind of program that characterizes life in the usual rational intellect. You are perceiving from a larger and deeper space. So that's my working definition of non-duality. It's not a theological definition, but a phenomenological definition. It talks about how perception works. Now, if that sounds sort of experimental and new age, I can say that I didn't think it up myself. I learned it from the cloud of unknowing. Because as I began to do this close textual study based again on the view that from 30 years of working with the cloud in, in the practice of centering prayer and trying out these really difficult and counterintuitive instructions and plugging them back in, I said, wow, he's talking about a rewiring of consciousness. He's describing again and again, but most clearly in chapter eight, a whole new whole new system of perception that is based on what you see when you move beyond that self-reflective awareness. So once I began to see it there, I could begin to see it everywhere. And it began to make so much sense out of, out of, the, uh, out of the tradition. Imagine trying to talk about levels of consciousness in 14th century vernacular English, which has only been around for, at that point for less than 100 years. The author of The Cloud is writing at precisely the same time as the Canterbury Tales. Uh, you know, one that assures Aprilo with his non-dual consciousness, Sota, you know. <laughs> what is this? But there is an awareness that of these states of consciousness. And so based on this, I'd like to share with you for the rest of the time of the talk, and I know this is something of a fast forward, but there are ideas that I want you to, to think about in a big way and go back and work within the book if it interests you, because I think they can be documented. A few, three corollary observations about the Christian non-dual uh, tradition. Once you make the, the great, the, the, the shift in seeing that non-dual really has to do with running a different operating system of perception. So the first, the first uh, of these three assumptions I'd like to share with you is that this reference to this non-dual, what Christianity means by non-dual, is most closely approximated in the word contemplation. That, that what, 
what is being in the classical ways alluded to and referred to as contemplation in the Christian tradition and in the Western tradition in general most closely matches what is in the Eastern traditions intended and portended by the term non-dual. Uh, that, and that remember in the tradition, one of the things that has happened nowadays, and it's a kind of, of byproduct of the fact of opening up meditation to the masses, is that we have in some sense dumbed down our understanding of contemplation. Uh, that, that in the early days of the church in the Neoplatonic tradition from which so much of Christian mysticism comes, all we knew about contemplation is that it was something terribly high. People talked about it as a, as a kind of knowing beyond knowing, a knowing impregnated by love. It was regarded as a, as a gift that one could hardly speak about. Uh, nowadays, you know, as a result of, of, of it being a gift so high, people essentially gave up on it. And that was the problem that Thomas Keating and John Mayne had to face in the 1970s. When nobody in the church was meditating, nobody had given up on contemplative prayer. It's just for monks at the end of their days. So we have it back again. And, and in, in Christian meditation, but in particularly in centering prayer, there's this idea that contemplation is resting in God beyond thinking, beyond emotion, beyond desiring. Uh, and, uh, and that centering prayer, while it's never seen as, as contemplation itself, God knows, uh, it is seen as an access route to that. So that's a partial truth. So much of our modern reconstruction of ancient practice is a partial truth. And the partial truth, what's true in that partial truth, is that you can't get to contemplation by thinking. You have to shut off the rational mind. You know, trying to get to, to contemplation by thinking is like asking your, your typewriter to run the internet. It doesn't have an operating system that can do that. And so since most of us are so reliant on our thinking and our sense of selfhood that goes through it and the emotions that are tied into it and the reactivities, it's like running around in a squirrel cage. And the, the contemplative path says that until you can stop that, forget it. Whatever we mean by contemplation, you're not going to get there. So these simple meditative practices really do allow one to suspend, end run, or rest in a deeper presence than can be sustained by mental work. And in that sense, they are absolutely prerequisite to the emergence and to the experience of those, quote, higher states. But that being said, Contemplation is not simply emptiness. It's not nothingness. It simply is nothingness from the point of view of the lower faculties. And the tradition has insisted that there is a content imparted in contemplation, a deep 
knowingness, a knowingness that cuts so deep that it, it is actually a slice of divine life, of divine knowingness that somehow downloads into your being and lives and speaks itself through and in the innermost marrow of your life. So it's something very high. And so I, I think that what, what we see particularly in the cloud of unknowing is that the, the author, the cloud, preserves that definition. And he, he realizes that the contemplation is a whole different state and system of perception. And he also is very, very clear, as he says it, that, that it is a work. He doesn't use the word the gift of contemplation. He says the work of contemplation. And if you would do the work of contemplation, so he sees clearly in the 14th century that this is a state of consciousness that can be accessed by the work, by a set of practices. And the set of practices he gives in the cloud are specifically intended to help further that work. As a matter of fact, he's writing this book for a young monk who's already been formed in the practices of the faith and wants to do the work of contemplation. So he basically says, all right, if you want to do this work of contemplation, this is what it's about. And over and over again, he says, you have to restrain. It has to do with reconfiguring your attention so that it's not all the time running out to objects to think about, even good and worthy objects, even, even the blessed Mary and her sorrows or the wounds of Christ, not even worthy objects. We have to keep pulling our attention back in so that it forms a resonant field of, gen, of gentle, diffuse, objectless attentiveness which he calls love, and which he calls the cloud of unknowing because it doesn't have sharp edges. You know, it's not subject-object like our usual mind. But he clearly senses that as we're able to do this work, we begin to access a different kind of knowing, a knowing impregnated by love that is essentially the work and is the signature earmark of contemplation understood as a level of consciousness, all right there in the cloud. So the next thing from there that I go on to, to say in the book, and this is a really important aspect of our Christian understanding of contemplation, i.e. non-dual states, a very important one, is that in the West, it is understood that this state of consciousness, this, 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 in a sense, this higher and more collected energetic bandwidth of consciousness that we call contemplation or non-dual awareness, is not simply an extension of the mind understood as the brain alone. It isn't teaching an old dog new tricks. It's not taking the mind and bringing it to another level. It specifically requires 
putting the mind in the heart. That, that is all over the literature, particularly in the literature of the Eastern Orthodox tradition, and particularly in the literature of Sufism that is heir to the same tradition, that the heart is an organ of spiritual perception, but it will only that work that way as we put the mind in the heart. And it's very clear that this putting the mind in the heart is not about, is not about getting your affections going, is not emoting, is not putting on a beautiful piece of Mozart and weeping. It has to do with uh, essentially a physiology again of attention that brings the energy of the mind into synchronous coherence with the heart. We talk about bringing it down. It's absolutely clear that the texts are talking about a practice that has a physiological component to it. So the, this emphasis is not always clear. It certainly is not emphasized in Eastern, by which I mean Asian, taxonomies of consciousness, at least as we know them in Western translations. I remember very well a, a Buddhist master and someone asked him, well, how, how do you know this? He says, well, I know it with my mind. So I've come to suspect that, that in our Western translations of things that we've misinterpreted what the Eastern traditions know too. But that not being a subject that I have any standing on, I will, I'll let that one go and just say that as far as the West, it's absolutely committed to the fact that this kind of consciousness, that this new upgrade for the operating system is not other than and cannot be had apart from putting the mind in the heart. And there's all sorts of texts about there. There's texts that talk about the burning of the heart and the warming of the heart. There's a real physiological component. Very interestingly, paralleled by recent research by the Heart Math Institute that begins to give us now fMRI imagery of what happens when brain and heart are, are in coherence and when they're not. So the whole thing doesn't look as speculative as it might have looked in the 14th century. But so the practice in the West is all about bring it into the heart, bring it into the heart, that you will know when consciousness is in the heart, and until then, you won't know anything. So the, that is the West's powerful contribution, is the consistent reminder that these non-dual states are not higher avenues of the mind alone, that they are embodied, they're in the chest, they're in a resonance that is finally a new kind of, of field of perception. Very, very clear understanding there. Uh, and the texts over the whole body of, of the literature, again, the cloud gets a piece of this. The best part of it is in uh, the, the Eastern Orthodox tradition, Simeon, the new theologian, some of these wonderful masters in the Philokalia, who talk about something called attention of the heart 
or vigilance, or nepsis, the, the Greek word for vigilance. In the West, we call it recollection. And it's very clear that this doesn't mean vigilance like being, you know, they're going to rob me, or recollection like, let me think about Christmas last year. It means very clearly holding a resonant pool of spiritual attentiveness, of diffuse objectless, as they call it in the Buddhist tradition, objectless awareness of a very high and shimmering and unbroken intensity in the region of the chest with, a, with the brain in training to it that essentially gives you, and I'm going to use a disgustingly uh, technological image, that essentially gives you the attentional power pack to run a much more intense, vibrant, holographic system of perception, which is known as attention of the heart, contemplation, non-dual. When a certain threshold of attentional energy is gathered in, purified, held in the heart, uh, so that it actually resonates, it becomes a new seat of one's identity and a new seat of perception. And I think this is the, the powerful, powerful, it's almost the light motif that cuts through the Christian tradition uh, of mystical, you know, non-dual experience. Very, very powerful teachings and treat, treating, treatments of it. The access to the heart, how do you put the mind in the heart then? Well, by the book, <laughs> you know. Two ways, two practices that are core. The most powerful one in the nutshell is the practices that have to do with kenosis. That's the Greek word. It comes from Philippians in the Bible when St. Paul talks about putting on the mind of Christ. And he says, he, Christ, though his state was that of God, yet he did not deem equality with God something he should cling to. Rather, he emptied himself. That is the word in Greek, kenosine, from which we get kenosis, emptying, non-clinging, non-hanging on, non-bracing, non-defending, non-asserting, uh, that whole, that reaction. And we actually do have data, again coming from the Heart Math Institute, that shows that when a person is able to do that, to move from a state which is like this, to a state like that, that there is a marked re-entrainment re of mind, brain and heart rhythms. So the practice of kenosis, of letting go, of non-clinging, of, you know, non-constricting, understood as a basic spiritual hygiene, is across the board as the first practice. Jesus taught it, the Philokalia teaches it, the Cloud of Unknowing teaches it, Meister Eckhart teaches it, Jacob Burma teaches it. You won't find it not taught in Christianity, but it's not because people want you to just grovel and be humble and not assert yourself. It's because that kind of collected energy, when you've got this, you're not going to have any possibility of contemplative wholeness. You can have your ego and you can have your vindication, 
but you can't have that deeper depth of being because that cuts it. So it's collected. Don't let your energy wander out in these stupid, squandered reactions. Bring it in. Hold it in. Gather it and allow something else of luminous knowledge to grow. The other, the other practices have to do with the attentional practices of actually bringing attention into the region of the heart and with attention gathered there to begin to say that time-tested prayer of Christianity, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me. Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me. You may have done that in your prayer life, but I'll bet you you've never done it first bringing your attention to the heart, bringing your sensation there. If you try it, I guarantee you, it's gonna be a whole different practice. It just splits you, splits the universe out of its skin, and you understand the vibrational presence and intimacy of the risen master in a way that it can't be touched by the mind alone. Okay, enough for that. Last point, and then we quit. The last thing is I say that this is why the language in Christianity is so deeply tied to those languages of mystical marriage, of the beloved, of the betrothal, that which is often looked upon when scholars look at the work and say, oh, this shows that they're still believing in a personal God, so they're at, the, they're at a lower level of being. It has nothing to do with first causes. It's not philosophy. It's not big daddy God up in the sky that I love. It has to do with the, the core felt sense experience that when you are able to sit in that bandwidth of gathered attentional energy in the heart, the nature of it, the irreducible emotional signature of it is personal, is relational, and is compassionate. In other words, and those aren't ideologies that are derived from thinking about it. It's an immediate felt sense experience that I know that many of you have when you sit in meditation and come out of it with this deep sense of a warm tenderness. You don't know where it came from. It came from the fact that the energy is connected and coherent in the heart. And so my, my sense is that that language can be looked at not to mean that we're trying to, to talk about, you know, personally going out and marrying God or marrying Jesus in our soul. It says that the nature of consciousness itself is relational, that's what the word consciousness means. It's with knowing. That it's, it's ordered, that it brings with it a moral coherence. Uh, in French, there's no word difference between the words conscience and consciousness. They're the same. And I think that's true. That it gives you a deep sense of not the explanation, but the meaning that the world hangs together in love. And that is the treasure that's to be found at the bottom of the well of being, in the cave of the heart, as one begins to enter 
to begins to withdraw attention from all those things that claim us and pull us back into our little egoic mind and to hold together this intensely deep and quieter and still gathered pool of awareness in the heart that becomes for Christianity the essence of contemplation and the essence of the non-dual. So all of this, I say once again, I didn't learn by reading scholarly books. It was the fruit and continues to be the fruit of 30 years on the cushion. But as we have more and more people doing that same thing, I think it becomes important to turn again to the core texts of our own tradition and look at them through the eyes of the heart and see what might be there in our Christianity, what treasures may be there that we haven't glimpsed before because we were trying to see them with the wrong pair of eyes. So with that, I'm going to stop for, the, for this part of the evening. Uh, we're going to take a brief stand-up break because you must be really stiff. And I, I want to show you something that you're going to think is terribly, terribly American, but I hope that you'll find this useful and that it was, it was actually developed by a, a woman who runs mystery schools all over the world. It's called a charge-up. And it's used in times when you've been sitting too long, when your body is about to scream, uh, when you know you've got to sit for meditation and you really want it to be good meditation. So we're going to do... We're going to make a loud, ugly noise and wiggle our extremities. Really, shake your head. Feel better? Already you can feel the energy, can't you? One more time. Okay. And then shake it down, shake it. Ha, ha, ha. All right. Think you can survive meditation? Good, because our planet needs us. So at this point, we're going to get serious, and we're going to uh, sit for about 15 minutes. And I would say use whatever method of meditation is your home plate. Or if you want to do, uh, you know, if you want to try to work tonight, if you never have since I brought it up, with bringing attention into your heart, just allow your attention to be present and gather in the region of your chest. And then do, Lord have mercy, you know, Lord Jesus Christ have mercy on me. Or do your mantra. Uh, Go for it. We can explore whatever once, but we will hold in whatever way a time of silence. Uh, and I'm going to lead us in with a chant. And as you pick it up, you know, I invite you to join. It has a very, very simple, simple, the words are, Lord, as you will, Lord, as you know, have mercy. And we'll sing that a couple of times to settle us in. We'll meditate, and then I'll lead you out of it by the bell.
Ready to go? Lord. 
Well, that's a little bit shorter of a time of meditation than most of us are used to, but at least I think we've held a fair and honest placeholder for our practice. was a really good and deep silence there. So I wanted to leave on just time if there are any questions or comments from the floor. Uh, yes, here's one right over here. I just wanted to ask if um, I were to buy the book that's coming out in December for somebody who hasn't read any of your books, is the book written in such a way that they could hook into it or would you recommend they read another of your books as a kind of lead into it? That's a good question. And uh, she asked, uh, I don't know how well it's carrying for everybody, but is the book that's coming out in December, would that be a suitable starting place for someone who is getting into it, or might there be another one? Um, <coughs> that my book begins with a very quick and dirty summary of the practice of centering prayer. It's actually taken from the, an email course I, or I did on the spirituality and practice site on the, a no-frill centering prayer. So it's there and it's intended uh, it's intended that you could, with just that much, get in, learn it, and then start to work the insights. I would say if the interest is basically in learning the practice of centering prayer, it would be better to start with my first book, Centering Prayer and Inner Awakening, which is really the nuts and bolts of that one. Uh, if, the if the interest is trying to see more how centering prayer in specific, but meditation in general, opens up windows of insight on the cloud of unknowing, on attention of the heart, on non-duality. In other words, it's a, it's a more wide-ranging book whose interest is, on, is really in Christian non-duality. So that would, be, that would be the appropriate one. Many people find if they just want to start reading a book that I wrote, um, the, for Christians, they come back to the wisdom Jesus over and over again, as it's been the, the most useful one. Uh, and, and the other that people tend to like is Mystical Hope, which is a very short and simple one I wrote years ago. And those that are wondering uh, about uh, women in the church like the meaning of Mary Magdalene. So uh, that's the Cynthia Bourgeau bibliography in a nutshell. Thank you. Uh, there's, a there's a question over here toward the back, and there's a question over front. Let's take it on the front for efficiency here, and then we'll go back to the, the back view. Yeah. Thank you very much. Um, I just wondered, as more and more followers of Christ sort of see with the eyes of the heart, mm -hmm. I wondered what your thoughts were about the implications for the church of the future, how that will shape the church or what sort of church we will have in the yeah. future. Uh, what sort of church would we have if more people could see with the eye of the heart? Oh, how I'd love to see it, <laughs> you know. Um, I, I think that we would have a church, first of all, that valued practice more because they would realize that without practice, you're going to jump right back into the chatty, gossipy, confrontational, contentious thing. Did you notice that moment when things clicked in and got so beautiful when we were singing, Lord have mercy, and I put the harmony in, and all of a sudden it was like, oh, 
there was this just touching of a different quality of experience. And so I think that we would begin allowing our worship and practice to collect our hearts. And as we did that, particularly if we were doing it within the context of the sacraments and, and the teachings of the sacred scriptures with collected hearts, that we would walk out into the world with a much firmer sense of what it means to live and to work beyond fear. And we would also walk out into the world uh, uh, we would, with a much better capacity to generate and hold pools, resonant fields of energy, which would then connect in the famous Rupert Sheldrake non-localized action way with the other pools of energy in Buddhism, in Sufism, in Hinduism, in Aboriginal spirituality around the world, that we would connect and we could draw a, an envelope, a sheath of compassion around the planet. So I think it would change plenty. And, and my, my, every time I see it, if I would do one more thing in the church, it's, it's to bring small groups that are meditating into larger circles so we get that taste of the recollection. Thank you. All right, well, hey, uh, there, was once a, uh, there was once a radio interview that was done of the, the, the pianist Clifford Curzon. Uh, and uh, the, the interviewer asked him, uh, Mr. Curzon, are you one of those pianists that, that plays in tempo, or are you one of those pianists that plays expressively? And he says, I try to play expressively in tempo. <laughs> and so I think we've done that tonight. We've played expressively in tempo, and it's 9 o'clock, and you can get your buses. <laughs> So thank you very much. You've been a wonderful audience. Hester is going to come off and send us back with, with uh, a few words of departure. Thank you, my dear. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> we'll do that. There you go. What have you to say? Let her have her peace. Well, <laughs> yeah, yeah. well you've rather beaten me to it. Yeah, <laughs> I was right. going to invite you to express our thanks, our heartfelt thanks in the customary way, but I, I would like to do so on a personal um, level. You, you used some wonderful phrases, Cynthia, and one of them was the phrase, luminosity is my nature. A wonderful, su suggestive phrase, but thank you so much. Thank you so yeah. very much for a really wonderful, resonant, exciting, integrative, and above all, I thought, luminous introduction to non-dual perception. As you called it, another wonderful phrase, if I've got it right, the upgrade on the running system, <laughs> yeah. which I think is another wonderful phrase I'm going to take away from this evening. Thank you. And so finally, perhaps we might just once again thank Cynthia for really, a really amazing generous and centered talk. Thank, Thank you, you, my dear. Thank you very much indeed. That was really cool. That was wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you.
And thank you to all. Thank you so much for your own good work as co-conspirators. And let's take the energy of our hearts pulled together and walk out of here, lifting it out to the city, to this planet, to the beautiful earth that we stand on. We dedicate merit, as the Buddhists say, and I think we've raised a lot of it tonight. So go in peace. Thank you.